have to say world peace. Definitely world peace. That's easy. World peace. World peace. What is the one most important thing our society needs? That would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. And world peace. Uh. <laughs> ah, good morning. Um, my name is Dana, and I'm one of the pastors here at Erickson Covenant Church. And in case you didn't recognize it or you want to watch it this afternoon, uh, this is a clip from a film called Miss Congeniality. It's about a cop, Sandra Bullock, who goes undercover to investigate a beauty pageant. And hilarity ensues. Um, I chose that clip because I, I love what it says about this kind of mixed relationship that we all seem to have with world peace, right? So world peace is like the most important thing that we're all supposed to want. All the beauty pageant contestants are supposed to want world peace. But then it's also kind of a joke. Like, it's also sort of, it's so far in the distance, so impossible, that we sort of can roll our eyes at the hope of that. But then also, when we get, like, really kind of quiet with ourselves and aware of our deep longings, it's in there. Wouldn't it be incredible if all the fighting would stop? If we did actually get along and love each other. There's this deep longing for peace, and that's part of what it means to be human. And we've been talking about a book in the Bible called Ephesians, which is a letter that is written to encourage churches who are in the middle of an awful lot of persecution. And the people who are reading that letter, they were longing for peace just like we are, and it would have seemed just as elusive to them. But the central message that Paul, who's the author of Ephesians, keeps coming back around to is that God has a plan for the world. And the plan is that God is going to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. Everything that's broken, everything that's hostile, everything that's oppressive, all the groups that are so far apart we can't imagine them being together, God's going to do it. He's going to reconcile everything, put it back to the way it was supposed to be. That sounds an awful lot like world peace, doesn't it? Well, during our summer message series on Ephesians, we've been following the scripture really closely. We've been using those little booklets. I know some of you have them. But three times during the summer, we're going to take a step outside of the text to pay attention to a special topic that's coming out of our study. And this is the first Uh, the first of those three weeks. Today we're going to be talking about racial and cultural reconciliation. It's a major theme in Ephesians. There are some incredibly powerful images in this book. And one of them is the dividing wall of hostility. Tom was talking about that last week. I love the image of the dividing wall of hostility because it's so true. Have you ever been around someone and you can feel the hostility between you? Like maybe you feel it from them or maybe you know it is going on in yourself. 
but it's just stacking up between you. Past offenses and judgments and assumptions and suspicions, defensiveness and aggression like bricks just piling up, walling you off from another person. Paul says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility that is between us. It's like Jesus took a sledgehammer to that hostility and just pulverized the wall. Imagine watching that. Watching someone smash your judgment and defensiveness and suspicion until all that's left is a pile of dust and rubble. Anybody recognize this footage? Some of you remember what it was like when the Berlin Wall finally came down. I was too young then to really grasp what was happening, but when I watch it now, I can't believe how amazing this must have been. To be there, to use a hammer and a chisel and literally break down the concrete barrier that had kept you apart from other people for so long. That's the imagery here that Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility between people groups, and he made them into one new humanity. When I was 19 years old, I went away to university in Toronto, and it was at a bilingual college, a really small college, and they taught in French and in English. And so because of that, we had a lot of, of international students, black students, who came from French-speaking countries in Africa and the Caribbean. Um, And they came to study because you could study in French. And the cultural diversity in Toronto was incredible to me for like a few weeks. And then it kind of got normal. (laughs) And I got used to it. And I came to faith through a United Church camping ministry. It was like this underground evangelical ministry in the United Church, which is a funny story for another day. And uh, once a year, twice a year, that camping ministry would put on a massive youth service. And so at Christmas, they had this huge service in Hamilton, which is a little steel town in southern Ontario. And, like, I'm not exaggerating, 4,000 kids would get on buses from all over southern Ontario and flock into Hamilton And we would have this three-hour-long worship service. It was the highlight of the year. We loved it. And so my first year of university, I got a bunch of cars together, and I took all the kids from my dorm who were Christians or who just wanted to go, and we went down to Hamilton for the service. And it was a good service, like a really good service. But the whole time I was there, I had this sense that, like, something was off. You know when something's just not quite right, and you can't really put your finger on it, I was a little bit uncomfortable. So I was sitting up in the balcony, and I'm just kind of letting my eyes drift over the congregation as I'm listening to the preacher. And all of a sudden, my eyes just lock onto my friend Chris from school. And he's way across this massive church, but I can pick him out with no problem. Because Chris was black. And I suddenly realized what was making me so uncomfortable. 4,000 youth were gathered together, and Chris was the only black person in the room. The community that had shaped my Christian faith was almost entirely white, and I had never noticed that before. I didn't know. 
This happens way more often than we'd like to admit. Right? We tend to gather for worship with people who are like us, people who are like us theologically, who are like us economically, and certainly who are like us uh, culturally. We might not even realize it's happening because, you know, I just have gone to this church my whole life. But race is one of the biggest dividers of churches in North America. I mean, in Canada, in some of our bigger cities, there are Korean churches and Chinese churches and Sudanese churches. And even though we don't call them this, white churches. We go to one. What does that even mean, a white church? White is a racial category, and it refers to our physical skin color as well as social status. Because white people can have a variety of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, and that matters because Italians are quite different from the English, for example, right? Like, those are really different cultural backgrounds. But there are some social privileges that all white people share. There are things we take for granted. We just consider them a regular part of life, which are actually available only to white people. It's kind of like someone gave us when we were born a backpack full of tools and maps and supplies and shortcuts, tips and tricks. And we just think that's normal. That's what it means to go through life until we realize nobody else has this backpack. want us to look at a couple of examples to help us understand what it might mean to experience that backpack, which sometimes we call white privilege. So I'm going to read a list of 10 statements to you. And what I'd like you to do is try to just keep track. You can use your fingers because there's only 10. Um, Try to keep track. How many of these statements can you agree with? Okay, they're going to come up on the screen. Here they go. Here we go. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can choose makeup or band-aids in flesh color and have them more or less match my skin. I can be reasonably sure that if I ask to speak to the person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race. I can easily buy posters, picture books, dolls, toys, and magazines featuring people of my race. I am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. I can go shopping alone, fairly well assured that I will not be followed or harassed by security. I can go into a supermarket and find the staple foods that fit with my cultural traditions, or into a hairdresser's and find someone who can deal with my hair. I can be sure that my children will be given curriculum in school that testifies to the existence of their race. If a traffic cop pulls me over, I can be sure I haven't been singled out because of my race. I do not have to educate my children to be aware of systemic racism for their own daily physical protection. Okay, how many of those, how many of you could agree with 10 out of 10 of those statements? I can, for sure. Can you imagine how different your life would feel if those things weren't true? Like, what would it be like 
if your daughter could not find a baby doll that looked like her? What would it be like if instead of someone asking you, well, what do you like to eat? They asked, what do white people eat? What would it be like if the grocery store didn't sell pasta or apples or bread that was sliced neatly in a loaf? What would it be like if you knew that the police would consider you dangerous because of the color of your skin? We're going to watch a video of parents who are dealing with exactly that reality and um, trying to explain to their children how to deal with it. What is it? I'm Ariel Sky Williams. I'm eight years old. I'm unarmed and I have nothing that will hurt you. That's just kind of a thing we practice at our house. There are great police officers out there. There's also some police officers who are not so good. And my fear is that you run across one of those bad ones. For some reason, People of color have always been a target by the police. Before they became a policeman, they were a person. And that person took all their ideas and all their thoughts and all their prejudice into their job. Why, why would a police officer assume that you did something bad? Maybe because of my skin color. I remember being putting handcuffs for something that had nothing to do with me. I was literally walking in the mall. Cops slammed me on the ground, busted my lip, chipped my tooth. That actually made me really mad. How about the time they pulled us over with me in the car and arrested me and left all of you guys sitting in the car and nobody knew how to drive on the side of the road because the bumper on the car was kind of hanging off? You know, we live in Piala. There's people that don't even have a bumper on their car. My rear brake light wasn't working, and I got to my destination, and they were working. I was about your age. Actually, they grabbed me. Why? I didn't know at the time. They just grabbed me. They threw me onto the police car. I got tased that time. That time they tased me because they said I wasn't complying. Ariel, are you okay? <laughs> What's wrong, baby? Okay, I'm alive, all right? Every day I get to see you, I get to do this, right? All right, come on, let's calm down, let's finish this, all right? You good? Hey, you're making me cry. Come on. You have to be careful when you're out there in this world because this world's not gonna always be honest or fair to you. I know, Sean, you got a little bit lighter than the rest of them, so it's a possibility you won't get stopped. Sound like you just pulled them over. Hold on. Yeah. If you're driving, cop pulls you over. Police gets out the car, comes to the window. What would you do? License and registration, please, ma'am. Why do you think I pulled you over? I don't know. Tell me. When a police officer says something to you, don't, don't. You're black. You can't be looking at them saying, "Oh, I don't know. Why don't you tell me?" Well, I mean, that right there is giving them to them the license to pull you out of your car and physically harm you because it will be done don't get upset don't get sassy why did you pull me over you don't have i know how this just follow instructions and stay calm okay do you think just being a police officer and pulling you over 
regardless of if you feel you've done something or not, they should get your respect? That's a tricky question. The answer is yes. Yes. If you got to go to your wallet to get your ID, say, can I go reach in my back pocket to get my ID out? You could do what I do, and I show them my hands. So when they're walking up, they see I don't have anything in my hands. I'm Errol Sky Williams, and I have nothing that will harm, harm you or hurt you. And what's the next place you put your hands when you're driving or on the steering wheel with your hands out? If at all possible, turn on, your phone on. on. And call someone and put it on speaker. But whatever you're doing, I want you to say what you're doing before you do it. You don't write any statements. Well, you have to write a statement. You don't have to write anything. You're a minor. I'm responsible for you. No one can tell you anything else. If he tells you to be quiet, be quiet. Do everything that you can to get back to me. I see it uh, weighing on you, and I don't want it to weigh on you. I'm just worried about Donovan. I'm worried about him now. Who are you guys talking about? Our, our, her, my nephew and her cousin. I don't want him to be shot. I don't want him to go to jail. Um, you guys, if you could say anything to please, what would you say? Learn about people. Learn about their problems. Take some diversity training. I mean, it should be like an every, at this point, like a monthly requirement. You know, there's really nothing at this point that they could do that would make me feel any safer with them without them just point blank, clearing them all out, and starting all over from scratch. So don't always assume that all of them are bad. Mm -hmm. But all you see on the news and in newspapers, and it keeps happening. It's just in a different way. It's like how people are like, you should forgive so-and-so, but they keep doing it to me. I, forget, I forgave them, but they keep doing it to me. It's, it gets harder and harder to forgive them. Um, I'm kind of guessing, but I don't think that any of you have had to teach your children about systemic racism for their own protection. You know what? Our black brothers and sisters have to do that. That's just a normal parenting conversation. Our First Nations brothers and sisters have to do that. People of color see a whole reality that white people never have to consider. If you're white, you can just choose to ignore this. People of color never have that option. In their book, Being White, Doug Schaup and uh, Paula Harris talk about, they talk about it like just uh, watching a, a movie in two dimensions, like just a regular movie, and then watching the same movie again in 3D. And that's a whole different experience, right? Here's the thing. That's what happens when we start to become aware of the experience of other cultures and racial groups. We see a whole new dimension. Some of it's painful, like in this video, and we have to be willing to take that pain seriously. But a lot of it is incredibly beautiful. Our lives are richer when they're shared with people who are different from us. God's full creativity and glory are only seen across a wide variety of cultures and ethnicities. And his full power is displayed when we learn to belong to one another and celebrate diversity. Do you 
know that there's a clear biblical mandate for racial reconciliation and multi-ethnicity? Sometimes white churches don't talk about that. But Jesus commands his apostles, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Followers of Jesus are supposed to love people from all the nations. It means all cultures, all races, all nationalities. And that matters because God is reconciling all things to himself. When he gathers up all people into this one new humanity, my friends, that is not going to be a white humanity. It won't. That is not going to be a group that looks like us or sounds like us or worships like us. Sometimes when I'm praying, I ask God to do something, and I'll ask him to do it um, for, for our salvation and for his glory. And I think that particularly applies to racial reconciliation. Friendships with people from other cultures, those are for our salvation. They literally save us from our narrow, two-dimensional way of seeing the world. And they're often so complex and challenging that when they work out, they are a display of the glory of God. Reconciliation is both for our good and it's a biblical imperative, a command of the gospel. Last week, Tom said in his sermon, Jesus died to make us one with each other as much as he died to make us one with God. That's true. If we're Christians, some of you are, some of you might not be, but if you are, we don't get to choose not to be reconciled to others. That would literally mean living outside the will of God. The group's that you hold implicit prejudice against, the people that you cross the street to avoid, the ones you're just still, if you're honest, a little bit afraid of. As a white person, you have the privilege, if you want, to structure your life to avoid those people and remain comfortable. But as a follower of Jesus, you are called commissioned and commanded to make peace, to be reconciled, to become one new humanity. You have to become family. You have to make friends. Now, the truth is, I've actually only been on the, this journey towards reconciliation, like, in earnest since about 2011. I mean, I believed it in theory before that. I would have given assent to it, but my life had not intersected with people of color in a substantial and sustained way before then. And that year, I agreed to host an internship program for InterVarsity, which meant moving into a house uh, with six other adults who were going to be campus ministers with me. So here's a picture of us, from shortest to tallest. Awesome. My favorite. Okay, well, I'm the shortest, and I'm white. <laughs> and uh, right next to me is Ashley. Uh, her, name was Chu, or her name is Chu now because she got married. Ashley Chu. She's Chinese. Beside her is Ashley Rodericks Schulwach, and she's biracial, uh, German and Pakistani. Beside her is Erin Yoon, and Erin is second-generation Korean, which means that her parents were born in Korea, but Erin was born in Canada. Um, beside her is Elena Johnston. Now, Elena works on our team, but she didn't actually live on our, in our house. 
Uh, next to her is Tom Pettigrew. Tom is white. And then Jinsuk Seo. Jinsuk is 1.5 generation Korean, which means that he was um, born in Korea and came to Canada when he was very young. And so most of his childhood was spent here. Uh, next to him is Dan Reed. Dan also lived somewhere else. And then at the very end there, uh, Preston Steinke, who is also white. Now, from the first week, with all of us together in what seems to me now to be a very small house, um, there was a lot of tension <laughs> as we learned about each other. Like, I learned that Jin Suk was 25 years old, and he had never cooked for himself, let alone for a household of seven other adults. And I thought, are you kidding me? Like, I, I thought that reflected poorly on his parents, that they hadn't taught their son to be independent. Well, I was wrong. I learned that in Korean families, parents go out of their way to make sure that meals are provided for their children. Things like meals, groceries, laundry, they try to do all of that, even while they're away at school, so that their children can focus exclusively on studying. And partly because of that, I mean, Jin Suk is one of the most brilliant people I know. And I should say this, uh, for his sake when he listens to this podcast. He's also one of the best cooks that I know. Like, he threw himself into that challenge, read every possible book about cooking, and he's a better cook than all of us now put together. I learned from this group in this house the joy of serving other people at the table. Like, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in my house, you took your plate to the stove and served yourself. Or if it was like a real fancy occasion, you passed the dishes around the table, but you're responsible for your own plate. Well, in most Asian families, what you do instead is you're watching, like watching really carefully everybody else at the table to see when they're about to run out of something and you try to fill their plate back up before they notice and certainly before they have to ask for anything. And, you know, I found it incredibly joyful to do that for someone else, like really fun to do. And when someone was doing it for me, like to experience someone taking that kind of care and paying that much attention to my well-being, I found that incredibly healing. I also learned in this house that in Chinese culture, it is almost embarrassing to praise someone to their face. Like, they will feel obligated to dismiss what you're saying, to disagree and argue with you, and so it gets really awkward. Um, and so what you're supposed to do instead is find a third party, a mutual friend, especially a mutual friend who's older than both of you, and you're supposed to praise the person to the mutual friend and then just trust that they will close the circle, right? So that they'll come and find the person you're excited about, and, and this happened often. They'd be like, do you know what Dana said about you? Like, she's so impressed with the work you're doing. She couldn't stop telling me what a great job it was. It's so fun. Like the first time I did, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to hear, but they do. It's like hiding this little present in a place where they'll definitely find it. And it's sweeter and more honoring because somebody else knows about it as well. And these people have become like family to me. I can't even explain it to you. I'm not really a crier. Whenever I see one of them, I just immediately burst into tears. It's the weirdest thing. They're like my brothers and sisters. I'm so convinced 
that I need a wide variety of people in my life because I love these ones so much. So here's a question. What is that going to mean for us? Like we are a predominantly white church in a predominantly white town. Well, there was a moment during the internship, I think this is funny, uh, where we were all in the living room together, we're relaxing after a long day. And Preston, right at the end, who's six, six foot three, lanky as all get out, he's like sprawled out on the couch, his arms and legs are everywhere, he's, just, he's utterly relaxed, and he goes, oh, isn't it so great when we don't have to think about anything, we don't have to be careful, I love it, when we can all just relax and be ourselves. And Ashley Chan, who's right beside me, so Ashley is like so tiny, and she is got, she's sitting on the arm of that same couch with her knees tucked up under her chin, her legs wrapped around so that Preston's feet have somewhere to go. And she just pounced on him. She went, Preston, oh my God, if you keep just being yourself all the time, relaxing however you want, there's never going to be any room for me, which was true. There literally was no room for her on the couch because Preston was being himself. Now, he wasn't being malicious, right? Preston doesn't have it in him to be mean. I don't think he could do it if he tried. He was just relaxing in the way that was most comfortable to him, but doing that meant he was inadvertently taking up so much space that Ashley couldn't find a place to sit. And that is a perfect metaphor for how white people tend to function in North American culture, or in most cultures. Doing what's just normal for us, we are often inadvertently squeezing out our brothers and sisters of color. In our white church, in our white town, one of the most significant markers of our privilege is that we get to choose whether we'll make space for someone else or not. We get to choose whether or not we'll learn about another culture. We get to choose whether or not we'll even care about this. If you choose to forget about this message, go home today and ignore it, I think chances are in Creston, no one's ever going to take you to task on that. But I guarantee you will be squeezing someone else. And you will be missing out on the rich and full kingdom life that Jesus promises. This is not the first time that I have lived in a very white place. When I moved to Atlantic Canada, there's not a lot of cultural diversity there. And so I asked my friend Archie, uh, who has way more experience than I do, for some advice. Like, what should I do if I'm going to live in a place where it's mostly white? And she said something fantastic. She said, you know, eventually more people of color are going to join your group, or in our case, our church. It's just going to happen. She says, we're coming. (laughs) And it's really, really hard to be among the first people of color to join an all-white group. Because even if they're super nice, and even if they have great intentions... Everybody will look to you to know how to make the group multi-ethnic. Everybody will look to you to find out what to do. It's a lot of pressure. 
And you get hurt a lot because people make mistakes, and that's totally normal, but all these mistakes are coming at you. <laughs> and you have, to, you have to figure out how to handle them. You have to decide whether it's worth it to bring it up that time. You have to forgive a lot. You have to teach and explain all the time. It's exhausting. And it would be so great, Archie said, if white groups started learning about this even before people of color joined them. So then when we come, we could just join a learning community, an aware community, instead of having to fight for the first steps and all that. It's not, it's not helpful. I thought that was so helpful. Why should we wait until we are a diverse community to start learning about other cultures? If we start learning now, we might even become more welcoming and more accessible. And so I have a couple of suggestions for us as we're going to start our learning process. These are very simple suggestions. So everybody should be able to do them all. The first one is uh, music. Get some music into your playlist that is written and performed um, by musicians from different cultures, even in different languages. And stick with it. Stick with it until you get used to it. It becomes familiar to you and you like it. Second suggestion is voices. I want you to try to diversify the sources of your learning. Follow some blogs that are written by people of color, by indigenous authors. Find diverse news sources. Even as a starting point, read a book by a person of color. In fact, because I'm, I'm so helpful, uh, I have a whole bunch of books at the back. On the table at the back, there's a sign-out sheet. Don't steal my stuff. But, um, but you are very welcome to borrow the books if you want. And all the books at the back are written by authors of color. A lot of them are novels, and so it's not trying to teach you anything in particular. But it will help you develop empathy for another perspective. Finally, food. Food is so important. Aside from language... Food might be the most important way of expressing cultural identity. And so try an unfamiliar food at a restaurant and learn about it. Don't turn up your nose. Don't shake it off. Even better, go into someone else's house, and when they serve you something you're not familiar with, ask about it. Commit to new flavors until you like them. Try them more than one time. All right. I have one more little video for you today. It's a lot of videos. Um, these two women, Wendy and Jana, uh, were interns together, uh, and I was their intern director with InterVarsity. So they didn't live in this house, but it was a very similar situation. Uh, and food was a particularly critical part of their journey together. So let's hear this story. Hi there. Uh, my name is Wendy Aoyang, and my Chinese name is Aoyang Wengqi. Hi, my name is Jana Ehrenholtz. I grew up in Barhead, Alberta. The population there is about 4,500. I grew up in Hong Kong, and the population there is 7 million. And most people in Hong Kong are ethnically Chinese. Most people in Barhead are ethnically white, specifically German. One of the staple foods where I grew up was potatoes. We would eat them at least once a day. One of the staple foods I ate while I was growing up was rice, and we would eat that at least 
two times every day. So I came into the internship after living in Africa for a year where they eat a lot of rice. But because I was in a different country, I just got used to it and figured that once I got back home, I would be able to eat lots of potatoes again. During the internship, the most jarring transition was what we ate. I felt like we were eating meat and potatoes all the time, almost every day, and I just really didn't understand the massive portions of potatoes either. So that's why I was so shocked to find myself eating tons of rice during the internship. I'm sure that we ate rice every day, either for lunch or supper, and sometimes people even ate rice for breakfast. I felt like we were never eating rice except for when I cooked it for our house, naturally. I love to eat and cook. Um, in my culture, in Chinese culture, food is not merely sustenance. Uh, we eat to bond with others, we eat to celebrate, we cook to show love. For example, in Cantonese, when you ask people, how are you, we actually ask, have you eaten yet? Potatoes mean home to me, so to be living in a home in Canada but not eating potatoes felt very foreign and unwelcoming to me. Mealtimes during the internship was difficult at the beginning because for the first time in life, I had to lay down my preferences in terms of food and I really fell out of control regarding what I was eating and I really didn't like that. I was so tired of eating rice. When my housemates fought against potatoes in favor of rice, I felt like they weren't valuing my experience of home. It was a huge source of tension for me. Potatoes just tasted bland, sad, and foreign, and it was like a visceral experience of displacement. And naturally, of course, to counter that sense of displacement, I would cook food that felt like home to me, so rice and Chinese dishes. So when people didn't like the food that I cooked, I felt hurt and rejected. When Wendy started sharing the stories surrounding the food that she made, I began to realize that if I didn't value her food, I wasn't valuing her experiences of home. And when Wendy cooked, I got to be a guest in her home. Wendy also started to teach me to cook, because I don't really cook. <laughs> and so I remember particularly enjoying the meals that we cooked together. Uh, when Jana started to share about stories of food and her culture, it was like a light bulb moment for me. Uh, I realized that the values and preferences we have around food are just really, really, really different. I really appreciated the times where Jana put in time and effort to cook food that was new or different for her. Now I eat rice more often than I eat potatoes. Anytime I eat rice, I think of my friends from the internship and from Africa who taught me so many things. I would say that if you are just beginning your journey towards building friendships and relationships with people from different cultural backgrounds, I would say ask questions, listen to stories, and just be prepared to experience God and His kingdom in a different light. If you're just starting the journey towards making friends with people from a different cultural background, put yourself in a position to be around them a lot and to be a guest in their home. It'll be a journey that requires sacrifice for joy, but it really is so worth it. <laughs> okay, here's my final encouragement for you today. Um, make a friend.
Make a friend. Go out of your way to meet someone and make friends with someone from a different culture. Because the best way for you to become convinced that a multicultural, multi-ethnic life is a rich and wonderful one is to love someone who's different from you. So make a friend or get some music, read a book, try some food. In fact, get ready. I brought one of my favorite Asian snacks to share with you today. So um, it's going to be served during coffee hour. It is uh, seaweed, like sheets of seaweed that are flavored like sesame. It's so delicious. I want you, here's the thing though. This is a challenge for us. It's our first step, right? For some of you, it's the first step. So you're going to taste it. It's going to taste different from what you're used to tasting at snack. I want you to try to do this with a heart that is reflective of the heart of Jesus. So even if you don't like it, eat it anyway. Who cares? Eat it a second time. And don't make a face and don't make a joke to your friends. Model for your children what is it like to extend yourself towards another cultural group by eating their food and receiving it as a blessing? Okay? Yes? Good. Oh, good. That's so great. I want us, my friends, to start becoming an Ephesians church. I want us to be a church that gets ready now so that as God brings us into contact with more and more of his people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, that we will be blessed to be a body that is more and more reflective of God himself. And we might be able to see all things reconciled in him. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, would you come among us? Would you turn our hearts and our minds towards our friends who are different from us? Would you give us a love and compassion for them right now? Would you give them love and compassion for us? We pray that over the coming months and years that you would make this body more reflective of your body, that you would make us a group that is more culturally diverse. And we pray that you would get us ready for that for the challenges and the joy that it brings. And would you do those things for our salvation and for your glory? Amen. All right. Happy coffee hour.